Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Daniel Neep. Daniel is a political scientist based at Georgetown University. He is American Druze Foundation Research Fellow at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. He's someone who's, who's uh, done a lot of interdisciplinary work despite being a political scientist. He's got a keen interest in social theory and is an expert in, uh, in the politics of Syria. He's the author of Occupying Syria Under the French Mandate, Insurgency Space and State Formation, published by Cambridge University Press, and is currently working on the difficult second album, a book titled The Nation Belongs to All, The Making of Modern Syria. And I believe that that is due for publication with Alan Lane, if I'm not correct. So I'm really excited about having Daniel on the podcast today. I'm really pleased that we've been able to make it happen. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's great to talk to you. Likewise, it's a real pleasure to uh, to talk to you about your work. And uh, as we've been exchanging messages and, and emails, I have to begin with a, a question that unites us both. What was it that, that made a, uh, a chap from Doncaster, South Yorkshire, interested in the politics of the Middle East? <sighs> Uh, That's a great question to start with. Thank you. Um, And I guess I should point out for those of you who don't know Doncaster, uh, (laughs) this is not a natural launching pad from which to become interested in the Middle East. Um, My, you know, I grew up in a a pretty working class, uh, very ordinary environment um, and had no family ties to the region. Um, I think the, the thing that launched me in this direction uh, was really a quirk of the British educational system, which forces you at the age of 17 to decide what you're going to study in throughout your years at university. Yeah. Um, and I, at school, had developed an interest in languages um, and decided that I wanted to carry on with my languages, but also to learn a new language, a hard language, um, on the grounds that it might get me a job at the end of it. That's <laughs> right. the way I was trying to think. Um, I started doing a bit of, I went to my local town library um, and started taking out books on different parts of the world. Read a little bit about Russia, thought, okay, um, not that interesting, really. I uh, read a little bit about Japan, thought, that's interesting, but Japanese doesn't really, ex- you know, there aren't many countries where they speak it. Mm. Um, then I started reading about the Middle East um, and did a bit of background reading on the question of Palestine, on Islam, um, and thought, this is really interesting. Arabic covers a large area. And it also um, overlaps with French as well. I decided I was going to study Arabic and French um, with the idea being that then I could specialize in North Africa and get a job as an interpreter at the end of it. Right, um, okay. So once I actually launched down this path, I went in a very different direction. But at the <laughs> yeah. age of 17, with a very limited knowledge of the world and limited guidance about how to move forward as a first-generation student at university, uh, this was kind of the thinking that set me down this path. Fantastic. I must ask, what were the, the books that you read and that really got you hooked on the region? Do you recall? I, I do not recall at this stage. <laughs> um, it's very, I remember the, reading the books they recommended to read before I uh, went off to learn Arabic. Uh, uh, Harani's History of the Arab Peoples, sure. for example. Uh, not really the ones before that. Right. Um, Fantastic. That's that's really interesting. Uh, a, a pretty interesting, unique story there uh, that got you into into the field. 
So where did you then go to to read Arabic and French? Uh, so I went off to Oxford University um, right. and focused entirely on Arabic literature and French literature and language for uh, four years. Um, I actually didn't take any classes in politics or in history or in anything else. It's very much focused on language and literature. Um, I spent, but it really, I think, what drove me more in the direction of the social sciences was the time I spent in the field. Um, the third year I spent studying Arabic in Damascus. Right, okay. Um, of that degree. Uh, I also spent a couple of summers in Palestine. Um, and this you know, encounter with the region, the realities of the region was really what um, redirected my interest. Um, and particularly I got to the point where I was thinking I'm spending all this time studying literary texts um, in Arabic. Um, and I was in- already drawn towards looking at literary texts from a very political and historical point of view, um, looking at them as discourses of power. And I eventually came to the conclusion that why not actually look at real discourses of power, political ones, non-fictional discourses of power, um, and made the transition towards the social sciences after that. Um, so although I was, as I say, not really interested in, you know, I wasn't exposed to the sphere of politics at that stage, I was reading a lot of the social theory, um, a lot of French post-structuralism in connection with you know, modern European literature. Um, so I had a kind of a broad grounding in social theory before mm-hmm. I came to political science. That's good to know. I want to I want to get onto social theory a bit later on, if I may. But can we go back to that time in Damascus and Palestine then? Uh, wh- when was this, Daniel, if you don't mind me asking? And, and what were your memories of, of studying Arabic in Damascus? Um, so the year in Damascus was 1997, 98. Right. Um, and I studied at the, the French Institute in Damascus, um, which had become around that time a real locus for Syrian intellectuals who were unable for primarily political reasons, uh, perhaps, let's say, um, who were not working at one of the state universities, but had become um, obtained positions as researchers and teachers um, on this year-long uh, course that the um, IFIAD, the, as it was, that the IFPO, uh, was offering for, for students of Arabic. It was an incredibly intensive course. It was entirely taught in Arabic, despite the fact um, I'd only had two years of Arabic prior to that. Um, I'd also never really spoken Arabic I was going to ask you about that, actually, if you'd done any any spoken Arabic, given your focus on literature. No, I mean, there was no, and this is the 1990s in Oxford, um, the teaching of Arabic was still done according to this old Orientalist paradigm, whereby Arabic was taught in a way similar or comparable to that of ancient Latin, ancient Greek and Latin. It was taught as a dead language, a literary language. Um, I don't think anyone spoke Arabic at all in the first two years. We, I mean, we had one class to introduce us to colloquial Arabic, um, but I didn't understand the relationship of colloquial to literary Arabic. No one really explained it very well. Um, so found myself in Damascus trying to speak Fusha with people and realizing quite quickly um, that <laughs> what the reality was. Um, so I made it a real priority to... Um, focus on dialect um, at the same time as I was engaged on these uh, more formal, formal Arabic. Um, and at that time as well, you know, it's pro- before the internet, um, communication was much um, more difficult with the outside world. There weren't that many people, there weren't that many foreigners in Damascus back in the late 90s. Mm. Um, the study of Arabic had not gone through its post-9-11 boom in the West. 
Um, so there are very few people, there are very few foreigners actually there, which made it possible to immerse yourself in local society in a way that became much more difficult uh, in the 2000s. Yeah, of course. I, I, I laugh as you recall your FUSA experience. And I imagine that many of us uh, listening to this or, or speaking with you would have had similar experiences having engaged in the study of Arabic and then trying to use what we've learnt out in the uh, in the streets of various parts of the region. So I'm glad to hear that it certainly wasn't just me who encountered that challenge. Uh, politically, though, Daniel, what was what was Syria like in 97? Sort of, as you say, pre 9-11 interest in the region, much more focused on on Syrians and, and local identities rather than dominated by by large numbers of, of, of Westerners or expats. What, what was it like there at that point? Um, very different from the Syria that emerged under Bashar al-Assad. Um, sure, yeah. Which, with which people are perhaps more familiar. Um, in the 2000s, particularly after 2005, they developed in Damascus and other major cities a cafe culture, a culture of restaurants, um, a, com- a culture of conspicuous consumerism, of expensive cars and mobile phones and so forth. This wasn't there in Syria in the 1990s. Um, there were very few you know, uh, certainly Western-looking restaurants were a handful, but not a huge number. Uh, there wasn't... I remember when the first bar opened in the old city of Damascus. Um, you know, all these places that now form... You know, they feature prominently in journalistic accounts of, oh, the nightlife in Damascus goes on despite the civil war. That wasn't really around in the 1990s. It was a much more... a, a much quieter, much more restrained um, state of affairs... The, the whole idea of displaying wealth conspicuously in the 1990s was much more restricted than it is now. Families with wealth did not want to display them ostentatiously in public mm. for fear of attracting attention, adverse attention to themselves. Um, even it was difficult for many foreigners in Syria to develop friendships with Syrians because Syrians were often nervous about being seen with foreigners in public and attracting fear of the security services. So there was a much more pervasive sense in which you were being surveyed um, or the or, or the potential for surveillance um, and for the need just to keep kind of a low profile, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, it, was, it was difficult to break out of that, certainly at the time. Again, very different from just 10 years later. Well, I was going to ask, what was it like the next time you went after your after your year learning uh, learning Arabic? What was it like when you went back again? So I actually went back immediately after I finished my degree program at Oxford. I returned to Damascus and right. taught English for a year. Okay. Um, so I went back in 1999, 2000. Um, and again, I think this year was pretty instrumental in... Um, just bridging the gap between my formal studies and developing a much more intuitive sense of what an empathetic sense of what society in Damascus was like. Um, sure. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to develop that thought because I just I'm having difficulty. Um, I guess what I would say is about these two years that I spent in Damascus in my early 20s is that to spend two years in your early 20s somewhere, it's a really for, it can be a really formative experience Yeah, in a way that spending two years in your 30s or 40s somewhere simply is not. Um, and I think that even though 
it was a relatively short amount of time I spent there. It had a deep effect on me um, and really did shape a lot of how I saw the world, how I thought about the world. You know, I'd spent two years living in Damascus before I'd ever lived in London uh, or ever lived in a big city. Um, That was the biggest city I've ever lived in. Um, And I think there's something interesting about how those two years really did set me down this track of um, focusing on Syria in in a variety of ways throughout the rest of my career. Yeah, wow. I I can imagine that that really must have that a very strong formative potential and, and and making you see the world in a in a very particular way, particularly coming from I, I joke about about coming from Doncaster at the start, but coming from that that type of background, a, a working class background from a an area that was was dominated by by manual labor, sort of pit villages, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Going to Damascus via Oxford, of course, must have had a, a really profound impact on on you intellectually as well as anything else? Yeah, I think firstly it's meant that I've never looked at Syria as a political scientist, stereotypically would, as a case study. Yeah. As a case that's chosen specifically to illustrate a particular theoretical argument. My interest and commitment to Syria precedes the kind of intellectual framing of it, if you like. Uh, But secondly, I guess, given the, my trajectory within the UK, um, which as you might expect coming from where I grew up and going to Oxford, was very much shaped by a certain degree of class consciousness. Of course. Um, and a yeah. sense of very acute social differences in a relatively small space. One of the things that's very striking about the UK is how class differences and differences of accent even vary within a very small space. You know, where I grew up, there was a town seven miles away where they used different words for foodstuffs than we did. <laughs> yeah. Um, in a way that is actually not dissimilar to uh, parts of... Uh, Syria and the Eastern Mediterranean as a whole, where you have a, a large degree of social differentiation clustered into a relatively short space. So I was always looking for and um, paying attention to, I think, these relatively minor, um, well, apparently minor uh, differences in social class and hierarchy um, that, you know, existed, you know, I, I kind of was able to recognize them in Syria um, in a way that you know, didn't make it seem a, a million miles away. There's nothing exotic or um, alien about it. It was a different way of um, encountering this expression of different hierarchies and social hierarchies. There's a, I guess there's a personal dimension to what you've been doing in the years that followed then, on the basis of what you've just articulated, that it isn't a case of, of picking a, a, a state for a political scientist comparative project or theory building or theory testing. There's a real personal dimension that, that there, are, there are experiences of having lived there, of having experienced different types of, of um, political intricacies and nuances that, that make you view a place and make you view a set of issues very differently to to having chosen it instrumentally for a a particular uh, intellectual reason, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I went on after my these years in Damascus to studying for my master's in Middle East studies at uh, SOAS. Right. I focused on politics and also took took classes in economics and in Islam. Um, so I kind of rounded out. Um, academically, my knowledge of the area. The other thing that shaped how I've approached my work is um, immediately after that, um, I got a job in London 
uh, running the Middle East and North Africa program at a think tank, uh, the Royal United Services Institute, um, which was an amazing opportunity um, and brought me very much to the kind of forefront of British uh, foreign policy uh, think tank debates between 2002 and 2004, which of course is the whole run up to the invasion of Iraq yeah. and the immediate aftermath of that. And the kind of first hand um, experience I had of that and this ability, this unique position I was in to observe from very close range the debates that were happening within the British foreign policy establishment, if you like. Um, and the way in which the Middle East was discussed and constructed within those debates, I, I think generated an uh, generated a sense of um, irritation, perhaps is the right word, uh, between how the Middle East was discussed in those contexts and the the kind of way in which I'd approached the region prior to that. Can you give us an example, please, Daniel? I realise it's difficult going back and. There's maybe some some personal issues here in terms of privacy, but if you can shed some light on it, I think that would be very useful. I just think in, in very general terms, uh, the kind of armchair foreign policy discourse about what states do and how states behave, uh, what is Iraq doing, what is Iraq thinking, you know, these great monolithic categories mm. uh, with which uh, foreign policy is usually discussed in a way that really obfuscates firstly the underlying political and social dynamics within those countries. You know, thinking about what the military is doing in different parts of the region without thinking about how the military exists as a social institution in relation to other forces within society. Um, I was very, you know, that that just irritated me, the way in which that was done and the way I kept coming, having to come back to, no, you have to look at what's happening within this country in its own terms rather than making assumptions about how it works from the outside. Um, the other thing that was <laughs> irritating in the broadest sense of the word um, was the way in which, particularly in the discussion around the um, invasion of Iraq, or rather the decision to support the US in the invasion of, of Iraq, which essentially that was the debate. It wasn't about Iraq itself. Yeah, sure. The way in which that whole context um, generated a certain degree of groupthink um, and made it very difficult to articulate arguments that did not fit within a certain paradigm. Um, and it was really interesting just to see how, you know, very often when we talk about ideas of Orientalism or uh, politics or groupthink, they're at a very high level of abstraction. Um, but actually to see how it works with particular individuals very slowly, gradually, over a certain, you know, uh, amount of time, um, Really, the way in which, you know, the kind of Gramscian notion of hegemony and how certain ideas become dominant, when you see that happening in front of you, it gives it a different reality than if you just read about it in a book. So I think that's, um, that experience is probably part of the reason why I decided to uh, leave the world of think tank uh, life and uh, start my PhD and move into academia. Well, the think tank life's loss which is actually quite difficult to say, is the Academy's gain. So I'm in some ways pleased that you you went through that process of, of irritation and frustration because I think you've added so much to, to academic discussions around, around Syria and, and social theory more broadly that it would, be, uh, it would be a real shame had you not done that. So um, I hope that came out in the right way. 
But <laughs> thank you. Uh, so let's talk quickly about the the PhD because there's there's so much else that we need to cover. Um, you you left Rusi, you went back to the academy, you you settled into doing a, a PhD. What was this on, please? Uh, where was it? Who was it with? So I did my PhD. I returned to SOAS um, and and commenced my PhD in the supervision of Charles Tripp. Um, and I think the decision about what to focus on during my PhD, and it was already predetermined in the sense that I wanted to work on Syria. Um, and I'd become interested through my time um, in the think tank world in this kind of interface of war in the military, um, state and society more broadly. Um, I was initially interested in looking at uh, the way in which the military was operating in Syria during the, the rule of Hafs al-Assad, uh, but soon became clear that it would be really difficult to do this in a way that was meaningful in terms of getting the type of evidence and empirical material you would need to make an argument about. You know, I've been reading uh, Charles Tilly, Steve Heidemann's edited volume on war states in the Middle East, for example. It was really difficult to come up with an argument that was both um, kind of intellectually compelling, but also rooted in... You know, empirical reality. So I ended up going back to an earlier stage of history. I ended up going back to the French occupation of Syria in the 20s and 30s, uh, where there was huge reams of archival material that I could look at. Um, but also this idea of looking at the French occupation of Syria really did follow on from some of my concerns about what was happening in Iraq in terms of the occupation. Um, you know, this was not the first time after 2003, that uh, the West had occupied the region, mm. um, had engaged in a period of uh, counterinsurgency, for example. Um, Toby Dodge had already written about uh, the British occupation of Iraq. Um, so I was interested in kind of looking at similar issues in the context of Syria, during the French occupation uh, at around the same time under the mandate. So it's really propelled me. Uh, luckily, I had enough um, background in French for my undergraduate degree to be able to read the French sources, so I spent a long time looking at archives in Nantes um, and in Paris. I also spent a long time uh, um, in back in Damascus. I returned to Damascus to do, do field work for this. Spent about a year and a half there during my PhD, um, trying to read as much as I could from the Syrian archival sources, uh, and also in terms of Syrian secondary literature about the the great Syrian uprising. So I, I, yeah, I think these two different different strands of my career and experience until then came together in the in the PhD, which then uh, resulted in uh, a book publication in 2012. With Cambridge University Press, I believe, right, yeah. which is fantastic. It's a wonderful book. I strongly urge everyone to, to get hold of a copy. Uh, if you've not already done so, it's well worth a read. Um, combining this rich empirical material with some some fascinating uh, commentary on, on social theory. And I wanted to pick up on on this, Daniel, if I may, this this interest in social theory does this stem from from your your degree? Did it come from elsewhere? What do you think it adds to to our study of of the region? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, I think what social theory does for the social science is really open horizons and create a way of thinking about research questions in a way that is not immediately obvious. 
Um, I would contrast this. I would contrast framing research in terms of social theory in a, in a way that I think of as a very European tradition. I would contrast that with the way in which it's done in the U.S., which where social science inquiry is much more often framed in terms of methodology, um, in terms of developing a set of procedures that can answer questions. Um, I think the, the the social theory enables us to ask questions in a different way about the world. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. I like that. You know, it enables us to take categories that we think of as being naturally occurring, self-evident, and really question them and really say, actually, does the world work the way in which I think it always has done? Um, and I think that type of initiative is always important, whether we are studying our own societies, but more particularly to think about, okay, if we're studying a society which is not our own, whatever that means, um, do these terms actually translate? Do they apply? So rather than taking terms that seem self-evident, I don't know, civil society, authoritarianism, you know, the bread and butter of um, uh, Western social science, we actually need to, be, before we even start our, to think about what they mean in a context like the Middle East, we really have to question where they come from, how they work, yeah. and how they translate into different contexts. So I think this question of social theory, to me, is linked with a whole agenda to get away from Eurocentrism, to get away from um, just simply translating the rest of the world into terms and frameworks that are familiar from the Western experience and look at how things work differently. Um, so I, I, I think I think if social theory is a form of trans, or opening up the possibility for, for translation in a strange way. Gotcha. I, I know entirely what you mean here. I, I I did have a question actually about about what you were saying about moving away from from Eurocentrism because when we look at the application of, of social theorists in in the in the Middle East at present, um, we see obviously the likes of yourself and and Toby Dodge using Bourdieu and Basil Salouk using Gramsci and others using Agamben etc etc. But these are all social theorists from a sort of a Eurocentric perspective. So how do we circumvent that? Is it possible to circumvent charges of Eurocentrism, given that we're using Eurocentric authors and texts, even though our aspirations are to do the opposite? So I think there are two ways in which you can approach this. Uh, the first way, which I tried to do in my first book, looking at Syria, was, you know, in that book, I was using a Foucauldian framework um, to look at, but also trying to bring Foucault together with uh, a post-colonial orientation. There's already you know, a long-standing post-colonial critique of Foucault, which yeah. takes to use and extend some of the ideas and the frameworks he comes up with, but to problematize them within the colonial framework, because obviously the big lacuna in Foucault is his complete uh, absence of consideration of what's happening outside France, outside Europe. Um, so there's a long-standing way in which you can problematize certain types of thought whilst extending and developing some of those ideas as to what they mean in other contexts. Um, you know, there's obviously a parallel debate has happened within Marxism for a long time too. So I think that's one approach to doing it. Um, 
the other approach is to say, well, of course, why are we taking these European thinkers? Why can't we use uh, thinkers and theorists operating from other traditions as well, uh, which can be, of course, equally productive? The danger with that is comes from a lack of contextual understanding. Uh, my the example that I um, comes to mind immediately is the instrumentalization of Ibn Khaldun's work. Yeah, um, Ibn Khaldun, of course, the great. Um, Arab uh, 14th century uh, historian who's often seen as the earliest uh, progenitor of social theory, who talks about the concepts of asabiyya, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of group-mindedness, this group belonging, which is taken up by many sto- studies of ethnicity and sectarianism as being a way of talking about group identity that's somehow innate or indigenous to the Arab tradition, um, without actually contextualizing it within his thoughts any more deeply or looking at you know, the precise circumstances with which we're talking about Astabia developing, uh, which is in the context of nomadic dynasties coming in and taking over cities and then yeah. having their coherence broken down by the decadence of urban life. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it's a very specific argument he's making. There are, you know, and I kind of, I get a little bit, um, the, the decontextualization of this term and transplanting it uh, to... Uh, a completely different modern uh, social context six centuries later, um, I think at times risks, risks um, Orientalism uh, in, a, in a very crude way. Um, so I, I think there are, there are, there are problems, I mean, there are problems with all these things, um, but there are other Arab thinkers who I think are neglected within the academy and Arab scholarship more generally, um, even if um, scholars are using empirical material from the region, material in Arabic, uh, they're not always looking at what we'd call the secondary literature, the, the scholarship in Arabic that are being written about various topics. Um, and I think that's a real oversight as well. Um, you know, scholars working in Arabic and across the region should be part of the conversation we're having about the region in a, in a, in a meaningful way as well. Exactly, yeah. I think that that's really important that you, that you stress that the the importance of, of of Arabic language, Arabic sources, but also contextualizing those thinkers that that many people are using because they have that that background, let's say, or they have the um, an authenticity, if if I can say that. Uh, and Ibn Khaldun, of course, is is one. There is a a Khaldun quote that I I. I I find really useful in understanding power. Um, and I, I do think that it, it actually resonates quite nicely today in terms of his ideas of the world being a garden and how everything is arranged neatly within that garden and reproduces and ebbs and flows and power operates within the context of a garden that's then walled off against the other. And I find that that really useful. But as you say, it has to be contextualized within the time and the place that he was writing. So, yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think a similar... I mean, it, it quite often happens, particularly in North America, I would say, in which there is a way in which social theorists are taken and their ideas applied in a very instrumental way without actually understanding the context in which they themselves are operating. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, critiquing Foucault, for example, about not being engaged with the state, for example. Um, when actually much of his work is written 
within a context where French intellectual thought is all about the state, it was all about Marxism. Yeah. So there's already a certain understanding there, implicit in his work, that he's writing within and against. Um, and I think if you miss these cues, if you miss these contexts, it's you kind of denaturalize, you, you misshape um, what these thinkers are really doing. Yeah. Like misrepresent them in a fundamental way. So I, th- I would have similar concerns about uh, thinkers everywhere. Yeah, and I think your point about instrumentality is is absolutely central here. Daniel, I must ask, we're, we're running out of time dramatically, but I, I've got two other things that I'd like to cover quickly, if I may. The first is, uh, you, you're talking about North American scholarship, and as, as someone trained within the British system, um, coming from a, from a languages background, a literary background, a social theorist background, with a, a PhD in international relations, how have you found the transition to working in North America, given your, your experience and your training? So I, I most commonly, I prefer to identify myself as someone who works in the historical sociological tradition of IR. Sure. Um, which within the UK is understood and well recognised. This is a tradition that Fred Halliday is writing in, that Nazik Ayub is writing in, um, a tradition that takes seriously the unfolding of social processes and state society relations over time. Um, so I, I mean, I, and I think that makes sense within the British uh, intellectual environment even today. That doesn't really translate super well to the North American political science, uh, which is, as we all know, much more methodologically driven, often much more quantitative and certainly more positivist. There is less room, more room than there used to be, but there is relative to the UK much less room for interpretive and historical work, which means you have a certain difficulty in establishing your identity as a uh, someone, as, as a social scientist here, as, as someone working within uh, a social scientific rather than, uh, you know, a kind of a, a different discursive environment. Hmm. I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. And I think that's really interesting. It's something that, that we've been noticing a lot um, in recent years as we've been trying to bring together scholars from from Europe, the UK, and the United States, and these these methodological, theoretical, ontological perhaps differences have become um, increasingly evident, although they needn't necessarily be evident. No, that's true, and I think there is um, there is a great deal of overlap. I mean, certainly within U.S. political science, there is much more space for qualitative work than there used to be, and even interpretive work. And right. especially if you look at work on the Middle East, much of it is produced in an idiom that is that translates very well across the Atlantic. Uh, if you look at the work of uh, someone like Lisa Wedeen, for example, who I would highlight as being probably the single, the in- individual, single individual most responsible for creating more space within American political science for not just interpretive but ethnographic work. Um, I think that's quite important. It was really, you know, 20 years ago, there was very little ethnographic work being done on the Middle East in North America. There are people now who are coming through PhD programs, who are produced from prestigious universities, who are coming out with, you know, overtly ethnographic um, work now. So there's much more of a sense in which this is a legitimate part of the political science community. It's still a marginal part, but there's this insurgent wing, if you like, on the interpretive side. Um, so I think there is more, more, more space here than there used to be. Um, but of course, making those arguments, those arguments have to be made in a way 
that is persuasive to the more dominant orthodox wing of political science in the U.S. So I think a lot of time is spent in the U.S. explaining why work on the Middle East matters for people who don't work on the Middle East. Right. What is there generalizable? What is translatable outside the Middle Eastern context? What? Are, what why sure. should this study of, I don't know, sectarianism in um, civil war Lebanon matter for people who aren't interested in Lebanon? Yeah, of course. That's exciting to hear that, that there is this, this new strand of, of scholarship that, that can go alongside more quant-based approaches, which I think have a time and a place, of course. And, and bringing together these disparate approaches, I think, is, is the way that we get some really fascinating work. So all exciting news. But on the subject of exciting news, Daniel, I must close uh, this discussion by asking you about your, um, your book, your new book on uh, on Syria it's got a wonderful title so can you tell us just a little bit about it and dare I ask when might we expect it and I'm sorry for asking that question no it's the uh, it's, it's it's not the first time I've heard that question <laughs> um, so the, the new book I'm writing on uh, somewhat ironically after telling everyone that I'm uh, having to repeatedly tell political scientists that I'm not really a historian in the US I'm actually <laughs> writing a history um, and it's a history of the making of modern Syria from the 1800s right up to the present day. Um, and I started work on this project um, soon after coming to the U.S. And in particular, you know, I, I, I realized that despite the amount of interest that there was in, uh, you know, prompted by the Civil War in understanding more about Syrian society and history, there wasn't really a single text at the time when I started this project that explained how Syria got from where it was 200 years ago to where it is today. Um, and certainly there wasn't a text that did that used um, sources in Arabic that drew on scholarship in, in Arabic to explain that evolution of state and society of those times. Um, so what I'm interested in doing is really refuting uh, the long-standing sectarian narrative of Syria or the Sykes-Picot narrative that suggests the civil war is a product of the fact Syria is an artificial state created by the French in 1920 and once that started crumbling it led to the resurgence of primordial sectarian identities. So instead of that narrative I'm writing about the different shifting um, economic geography of Syria, how different regions of Syria have become uh, united and um, configured in different um, ways over the um, you know over previous decades, in the context of different episodes of state building, different ways of economic and expansion and contraction. So really connecting things like the state and the economy, institutions, uh, and bringing them back into the story of um, sectarian uh, to nuance the story of uh, this narrative of sectarian. Um, it's fantastic. It sounds super exciting, uh, incredibly important. It reminds me of a similar work by Hannah Batatu on, on Iraq, which was um, equally ambitious. So I'm really excited to, to read this when it comes out, Daniel. When, when should we expect it? Or when should we hope to expect it? Um, well, I hope it will be published once I finish writing it. Um, but I've, yeah, I've, I mean, this is a long doorstopper of a book. Um, there's going to be, I think, 11 very long chapters. Right. Um, so I'm now working on the last two of those. But hopefully it will be published next year sometime. Amazing.
So word lengthwise, we're talking well over a hundred thousand. I'm talking about one hundred and fifty thousand, unfortunately. Amazing! That sounds fantastic. <laughs> Something to get one's teeth into. Absolutely, but... doorstopper. Yeah, exactly. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm really excited about the book and really enjoyed reflecting on Syria, on social theory and on uh, on Doncaster. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great to chat. Thanks. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.